Father, we confess that, um, that we, are, we are transitory, we are temporary in this world, and yet our souls live on somewhere in eternity. Those of us who belong to you, we're confident in our salvation. Lord, we rejoice today in your steadfast love that holds on to us, holds us fast, keeps us secure in you. Father, as we work through our passage this morning, I pray that you'd help us to to see ourselves in it, to to rightly perceive who we are, what you're doing in us, and and what you're calling us to do. Lord, I pray that you'd... uh, Help us to hear your call to to holiness, your call to surrender, your call to be a faithful witness in this world. And Lord, for those who are here this morning and they're they're not they're not yet yours, Lord, would you would you call them this morning? Would you stir in them and awaken them, regenerate them, bring them into the family of God this morning, even as we read about how you did that two thousand years ago? In Acts chapter 10. In Jesus' name, amen. Probably every one of us in this room at some point has made a judgment call about somebody and then found out that it was, it was the wrong judgment call. Maybe you didn't even know the person. You just you looked at them and there was something about their appearance. Maybe, uh, maybe it was the clothes or their hair, the dyed hair, the, the piercings, the tattoos, and you made a judgment call. Maybe it was because you knew their family, and because their older siblings were a certain way, you assumed that they were a certain way, or their, their parents were a certain way, and so they probably are that way too. Maybe you've even made a judgment call just based on the color of somebody's skin. Today we're going to see how God breaks through those kind of judgments, how God shows that they are not legitimate And he's going to do it in such a way that really changes history. We're going to look at a particular event this week and next week. This week, we're going to zoom in and see it at a personal level through the two main characters, Peter and Cornelius. Next week, we're going to zoom out and see the bigger picture of it and kind of how it relates to the whole history of the church and the history of the world. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 10 today. And we're going to do it a little differently than we normally do. Normally, we take a few verses at a time, I read them, we explain them, we work through it a little chunk at a time. This time, because of the way the story flows, we're just going to read the whole chapter 10, 48 verses, and then we'll go back and we'll pick out little pieces of it and talk about why those things matter. So if you're following along, you're going to be wanting to look in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. It's on page 918 in the Pew Bibles, if you want to find that. And this, uh, you know, every week I, I would hope that you open your Bibles and, and have them physically in front of you, or at least on your phone, but especially this week, as we're just going to go through that whole story. Please find it, page 918 in a Pew Bible. Last week, we saw how Peter the main disciple, the leader of the early church, he went on a journey, went from Jerusalem, and he, he traveled down to two cities, Luda and Yope. God worked miraculously in both of those cities. In one, Peter was used by God to heal a man who had been crippled, bedridden for eight years. In the other city, God used Peter to actually raise up a woman who had died. Well, the action today is going to take place 31 miles up the coast in Caesarea. 
we might say Caesarea, because it's named after Caesar. It was an important port town and a government center for the Roman Empire, who was occupying all of Israel or Palestine. Because of that, there were lots of Roman soldiers there, including our main character today. He's one of those soldiers. So let's read Acts chapter 10, 1 through 48. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Yope and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Yope. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour of the day. He became hungry. He wanted something to eat. But while he was there preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They said to Cornelius, they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house to hear what you have to say. So he invited the men to be his guests. And the next day rose and went away with them. Some of the brothers from Yope accompanied him. On the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with them, he went in and found many persons gathered. He said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. And Cornelius said, 
four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Yope and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have, command, have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness, and everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to remain for some days. All right. Let's go back and figure a few things out. First of all, our main dude is Cornelius. Who do we, what do we know about him? Well, we know that he's a Roman soldier which means that the Jewish people are supposed to hate him. We also know that he's a captain over a hundred other soldiers. That's what it means to be a centurion. We know that even though he's a Gentile, that means he's non-Jewish, he is described in this very curious way. He's a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. And I wonder, how many of us could that description be said truthfully of us? This is an exceptional man, even though he's on the outside of the people of God. Now, I hope you're asking some questions about that description. What does it mean to be devout? It means to be very religious, spiritually very serious. He's committed to his religious worldview and to living it out. He doesn't just believe things. Those beliefs are so integrated into his life that it changes the way that he lives, even giving generously to those who are in need and praying continually. It says he prayed continually to God, and so we might want to ask, which God is he praying to? Because the Romans had all kinds of gods and goddesses. Well, Luke, as he records this for us, simply uses the Greek word theos, which just means God. It's where we get our word theology, study of God. And we are meant to understand that Luke is telling us that this, this pagan Roman soldier 
is somehow praying to the one true God. The God of the Jewish people, whose homeland he and his brothers in arms are forcefully occupying. This Gentile Roman soldier is somehow devoted to the one true God. We're also told that he feared God. If you don't fear God, you don't know much about him. Because once you get a picture from the Bible of who God actually is, the right and natural response is one of fear. He is the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all things. And he is the judge, the righteous judge of all things. The Bible speaks of fearing God as a good thing over and over again. In fact, in Psalm 111.10, says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's a similar verse or two in Proverbs that says the same thing. And we're going to see today that this holds true for Cornelius. His fear of God leads him to wisdom. What else do we know about this guy named Cornelius? We know that even though he's he's a God-fearing religious person, he is not a Christian. He has not been saved when we meet him. Now, he's a good guy by most standards. He's the kind of guy that you want as a neighbor. He's moral, he's upright, he's religious. But that doesn't mean that he has been saved. Now, we probably all know a bunch of people kind of like Cornelius. Some of us assume that everyone who has not been born again is just morally bankrupt, a terrible person, sinful in all kinds of obvious and external ways. And that's just not true. Everybody in this room, if we kind of pooled our resources, we would probably come up with a list of hundreds of people that we would say they're, they're basically pretty good. You know, we, we like them. We can trust them. And they're good citizens in the, in the village, in the surrounding community. And maybe they're religious. Maybe they go to church pretty regularly. And maybe they're generous. And maybe they pray a lot like Cornelius. Does that mean that they belong to the family of God? Don't fall into the temptation that Peter and his friends would have easily fallen into. That is to, to write off individuals and groups of people as hopeless, unsavable, unreachable by God. But don't fall into the other opposite extreme temptation either, which is a, a kind of universalism that says, hey, if people are basically good, and especially if they're religious, and they've got good intentions, and maybe they, they pray a lot, and they don't really have anything figured out, and, but maybe God considers that good enough. Those are both grave errors. What else do we know about Cornelius? We know that God loves Cornelius and sent an angel to give him a very special message. Angels are not humans who have been promoted to a higher job. Angels are specifically created by God as different spiritual beings. There are some warrior angels. There are some messenger angels. In this case, God sends a messenger angel with a specific, but I find very curious, message. Because he could have sent the angel, said, go tell Cornelius the gospel. Tell him everything he needs to know to be saved. And yet he doesn't do that. The angel could have popped into that room there in that vision with Cornelius and said, Cornelius, here's the deal. You've heard a little bit about that guy named Jesus. Let me tell you, he is the Son of God, God the Son. 
God in the flesh come to rescue people like you. All right? Didn't come to rescue angels. Came to rescue people like you, Cornelius. He lived a perfect life. He was crucified on a Roman cross by maybe some of your own buddy soldiers. And yet he rose from the dead three days later, conquering the grave, conquering sin. And if you, Cornelius, even though you're a Gentile serving the Roman Empire, if you would repent of your sinful ways and trust completely in Christ alone, you could be saved, forgiven, adopted into the family of God. He could have sent the angel to say that, but he didn't. Instead, he says, go, angel, go tell Cornelius to call and find Simon. Simon, Peter, he's going to tell you everything you need to know. Now, I find that very interesting. God chooses to work through fallible humans to spread his gospel message. Or he could just blast it through a completely reliable angel. So Cornelius sends his guys out to find Peter. God tips off Peter right before they get there. He gives a little bit of quick heart surgery to Peter to get him ready. He's got the vision of the sheet coming down with all the animals, specifically unclean animals, animals that the Jewish people have been told, not just by tradition, but by God himself, to not eat. And yet the voice of God in that vision says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And so Peter has the audacity to argue with the voice of God. It's like, let me remind you, God, that you told me not to eat these things, so you must be mistaken, right? I've never I've never eaten these things. How, how could you suggest that I break your law? Yet God then corrects him because he's opening the door of salvation to the Gentiles. So he says to him in verse 15, what God has made clean, do not call common. And this is not about the food. The food's the vision to help get this through Peter's head. This is about the people that Peter's about to go talk to. Peter doesn't get that at first, but by the time he's walked 31 miles north, it's sunk in. He understands what God is saying. Notice, God doesn't say, forget about that old law about eating the food. I changed my mind. I'm, I'm scrapping that law. He doesn't say that. He says, what I have called clean, you should not call unclean. God's not saying that the law was a mistake. He's saying, I'm now making clean the things that were previously unclean. And he's going to do that with Cornelius too. Cornelius, for all of his good religious intentions and his morality, he is unclean. And yet God is going to make him clean. We saw last week how God was helping Peter taking steps towards this, helping him understand things are different than what he thought. The world is changing. Today, his world gets flipped upside down entirely. Now, when Peter shows up, Cornelius does another unexpected thing. He comes out of the house, and he falls down before Peter, and he worships him. And Peter rightly says, no, 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 don't worship me. I'm just a man like you. So this shows us that Cornelius is 
confused. He's very religious. He's very devout. He's very committed to his religious beliefs, but, but he's confused. Maybe some of you are confused also. Maybe you're getting some ideas from the Bible, but you're getting ideas from other sources too. You're taking a little bit of Oprah, a little bit of Dr. Oz, and you know, mixing things together. You're making your own little stew, and what you end up with is confusion. And yeah, you're not bowing down in front of anybody and, and worshiping them, but maybe you're confused. Deep inside, you know you've got it wrong. You're not sure what is wrong, but you know it's just, it's not right. That's where Cornelius was. And he was humble enough to be corrected and to still seek after the truth. So Peter gets the backstory. Okay, why exactly are you guys sending to me? How did you know about me? All that. He gets, he gets the backstory. And then Cornelius says this amazing thing. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Now, for Peter, a preacher of the gospel, this is music to his ears. Right? I gathered all my friends, my relatives, all my buddies. We're here. We know that you speak on behalf of God. We are listening. Please tell us what we need to know. And I, I think Peter would just be taken aback by that. Like, what? This is amazing. This is the invitation that I wish everybody would give me. And so he jumps right in. He jumps into the gospel message. But first, he says this, verse 34. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Now that should bother you. Because that sounds like a works salvation message, doesn't it? Right? Everyone, doesn't matter the nation, okay, that's good. No partiality, that's good. But anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to him. But I thought we were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that our works, I mean, think about Ephesians 2, 8, 9, our works are nothing, and yet... Peter here seems to be saying the opposite. How are we to understand this? Is he saying that Cornelius has been religious enough? In, in his ignorance, he didn't know really who he's worshiping or how he's supposed to worship, but he's been earnest. He's been devoted in his confusion. And he's been good. He's been generous to people in need. He's, he's prayed a lot. He doesn't maybe know what or who he's praying to, but but he's worked hard at it. And is he saying then that Cornelius has already been saved, that he's accepted by God? And I would say no, that is not what he's saying. And I'm going to point you to two passages to help you understand that. First, if we go to next week's Acts chapter 11, Peter is summarizing this whole thing to his buddies at the church back in Jerusalem. This is how Peter explains it, Acts 11, 13 through 14. And he, that means he's, he's talking about Cornelius, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Yope and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So Peter, he's, he's given us more details 
Luke left those details out for the sake of the story in chapter 10. He includes them now in chapter 11. We know that part of this sending for Peter thing is that uh, uh, Cornelius has been told that Peter has the message you need to hear in order to be saved. Which means, without that message, where you are right now, Cornelius, you are not saved. If we go back to chapter 10, the chapter that we're working in today, we can see in verse 43 another support to this. In verse 43, we read, To him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. So who is it that is forgiven? Who is it that is saved? It's not the religiously devout, committed, intense, but misguided person. It is he who believes in Jesus that is forgiven. That's the dividing line. So you can be the best neighbor. You can be loved by everyone. You can be the most popular person in town. You could be the most religious person in town. You could go to church all the time. You could pray all the time. You could give generously all the time. You could read, all, read the Bible all the time. And yet, verse 43, if you're not believing in Jesus then you don't have forgiveness. You are still spiritually dead in your sins. So we better ask and answer the question, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? It is not simply to agree in our minds to assent to the idea that Jesus existed. Lots of atheists, Muslims, Buddhists, Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, people all over the world will say, yes, Jesus existed. That can't be what it means to believe in Jesus. It's not even to, to assent to the idea of like, he said the things the Bible says he said, and he did the things the Bible says he did, even the miracles. There are lots of people who reject Christianity, who say, yeah, Jesus was a great teacher, he said those things, and he even worked those miracles. They're not Christians. It doesn't even mean to agree that Jesus died on the cross and rose three days later and ascended to heaven. You can believe all of those things and you can still be dead in your sins. Biblically speaking, belief here is an action in two directions. The first action that we see over and over in the New Testament is the the action of turning away from your sinfulness, from your self-rule, the act of repentance. I'm not going to be the Lord of my life. I'm not going to pretend that I'm God. I'm not going to try to call the shots. I turn away from that. The other side of that then is the the faith side, the belief side of it. I'm going to trust not me, but I'm going to trust in Christ specifically his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his work on my behalf, I'm going to trust in that. I'm going to take his goodness that's offered to me freely and give him all my badness. He's going to kill it on the cross. That action of turning away and turning towards, that is what the Bible means by believing in Jesus. Right? So when you, when you get the most popular verse in the world, John 3.16, So that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. It's not whoever believes he exists, whoever believes he said these things, or even believes that he died on the cross and rose in. But it's he who trusts 
in Christ alone for salvation is the one that's saved. That's what, that's what is happening behind Peter's statement here when he says everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So if that is all true, then what in the world are we supposed to make of Peter's statement here? In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Is it just a bad translation? Did Peter misspeak? What does this mean? I think taken in the context of 10 and 11, taken in the context of the witness of the rest of the New Testament, there are a few ways to explain it, and I'm just going to skip to the one that I think is most legitimate. That if there is a person who naturally recognizes there must be a God, and with, without corruption that so many of us have, that is really how God designed us. He designed us to look at the night sky, to look at the ocean, to look at the mountains, to look at people and conclude there must be a God, a creator of all of this stuff. That's the natural conclusion we should all come to. So if somebody comes to that conclusion and then logically says, well, if, if there is a creator over everything and he rules over everything and all this stuff is so good and amazing, then he must be good, he must be pure, he must be what we would call holy. And if you take the logical step further by observing how people order and structure society and families, then we, we say, well, he must also be, he must be a judge too. And that must mean that I'm somehow accountable to him. And if you go through that process, knowing nothing about Jesus, and yet you come to that conclusion that God is the good, loving, yet judging creator of the universe, and that you are accountable to him, then naturally you should fear him. And that's what we see in Cornelius. He's piecing things together. He's responding with fear to this God that he doesn't really know. And this this movement towards God, kind of, he's got his super dark sunglasses on, he can't quite see where he's going, but he's, he's trying to move towards God. That fear, that reverence, that respect in the middle of his confusion is somehow accepted by God, not for his salvation, but to send him what he needs to know so that he can be saved. See, God could have looked at Cornelius and said, you are confused. You're a good dude, but you are confused. Sorry, buddy. You're born in the wrong family at the wrong time. You're out of luck. No. Instead, he says, this man who is confused, stumbling around in the dark, who fears me but doesn't know me, I love him. And I'm going to send him the messenger that he needs to hear the message that he needs to get the forgiveness that he needs. I think that's the best way to understand what's happening here. Now, I'll admit, this is a hard-to-understand verse. And somebody could argue with me, that's fine, but I think this fits well with the message of the New Testament. Peter gets into his speech about the gospel, and he talks about how Jesus, after he's raised from the dead, he didn't show up to everybody, he just showed up to those who were chosen. And I bet at that point, Cornelius and his buddies are thinking, I wonder, I wonder if we could be chosen. We're, the, we're on the outside, but I wonder if we could be chosen. And just, just a few sentences later, Luke tells us, yes, they were chosen. Because Peter gets interrupted 
Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised, that means the Jewish people who were there, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. How did they know that the invisible Spirit was poured out on these Gentiles? Verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. So we've already seen in Acts how God uses this miraculous gift that the Bible refers to as speaking in tongues, the ability to speak in a language that you have not learned. He uses that in certain ways in the early church. Most clearly, so far in Acts, what we see is God is using that special miraculous gift to publicly and undeniably identify who is in the church. Because the Jewish people in the church, they've got lots of questions. We've already seen how they they said, well, we know that the gospel has come to us as Jewish people. What about the half-breed Samaritan people? Could God save them? And we saw a few chapters ago in Acts that the gospel goes to the Samaritans God saves the Samaritans and stamps them outwardly with that gift of the Holy Spirit so that all the Jewish people who are asking the question know the answer. Yes, God saved the Samaritans. Now we see here another layer out. The the Gentile world, the occupying soldiers. Could God save them? The answer is yes. And it's proven to the people already in the church through that external gift. Now, this is not normal. Even in the book of Acts, this is not normal. As you go through the book of Acts, the the idea of speaking in tongues becomes less important, less prevalent. God is using it very specifically to show, I'm opening this door, I'm opening this door. All of you who are already inside, you better welcome those people in because I have marked them as my own and you heard it with your own ears. As we get farther and farther into Acts, God is working in different ways. So that when Paul writes back to the Corinthians a couple decades later, he's like, you guys are all fixated on this idea of tongues, but it's not that big a deal. You should be loving each other. That's the main thing. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. You can read it this week. He gets in on that. Now there are some churches today that would say, Everybody who's a Christian must speak in tongues. And usually what they mean by speaking in tongues is actually very different than what we see in the New Testament as it's described. And they would, they would take it to this heretical extreme and say, if you're not speaking in tongues as we define it, then you're obviously not a Christian. Or if you soften a little bit, you may be a Christian, but you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. Because the, the mark, they would say, is the speaking in tongues. The only way to get to that is to ignore the clear teachings of like 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, other places in the New Testament, and to take something like what we read today, which is a descriptive passage, here's what happened, described, and turn it into a prescriptive requirement. This is what must be true of you in order for me to believe that you are a Christian. But none of that corruption is happening in the passage itself. In the passage itself, God is simply blowing open the doors of the church, welcoming in the Gentiles, and providing that special gift 
so that the insiders know to stop acting like they're special, that they're better than those who were, up until that moment, outsiders. Yeah. I know there was a lot in there. It's a long passage. I thank you for your patience as we went through it. I wonder, what should we do with this? It's a descriptive passage. It doesn't really tell us what to do. Should we just walk out of here thinking, well, that was interesting? Or are there certain things that we can reflect on? Three ideas for you. First, which of the two main characters are you most like? Are you more like Cornelius or are you more like Peter? If you're more like Cornelius, you may, you may be religiously earnest yet confused. You may be a pretty morally good person, you know, better than most of your neighbors. Maybe you're generous. Maybe you're reading the Bible. Maybe like Cornelius, you even pray a lot. But you're outside the family of God. Because you have either not heard or you have misunderstood or ignored the gospel message. You have not responded with repentance and faith, and you're still dead in your trespasses and sins. If that is you this morning, especially if you have heard me say this a bazillion times, I pray that God opens and softens your heart. That even if you've been a part of this church for decades, that you realize, man, I am more like Cornelius. Let me take you back 700 years before Jesus. God sent the prophet Isaiah to confront the Israel people in their sins, and he did this in this really surprising way. Isaiah 64, 6, just one verse here. Isaiah includes himself in this condemnation. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean. A whole nation, we're, we're like unclean people. And he says this, all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, or a different translation would say filthy rags. What, what is like the polluted garment? What is like the filthy rags? Well, obviously all of our sin and stuff, that's not what he says. Our righteous acts, our righteous deeds, the things that Cornelius could be most proud of, and he stands out among his peers as being upright and praiseworthy in these things. It's those things that the prophet Isaiah includes himself in and says, our, our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment filthy rags. Even our best efforts. Even the best guy in the city of Caesarea. He's hopeless. His best righteous deeds are just polluted garments and filthy rags. But the gospel, the good news says that Jesus came and lived a life free of any polluted garments and filthy rags, until the very end when he is clothed in filthy rags, covered in his own blood and the dirt from his beating. And then he's stripped even of that and hung naked on a cross to take all of our filth, all of our pollution, even the things that we think are most righteous in us, he takes those as polluted filth upon himself and dies to give us freedom. And to purify us. If you're Cornelius today, I pray that you have heard this gospel message and that you will respond by receiving that free gift. But maybe you're more like Peter. God's been working on you because you realize you have written off certain individuals as unsavable, maybe unworthy of your time and effort. 
or maybe groups of people. There's no way God could save that family, people who live in that way, or people who need that kind of help. There's God, God can't do that. He wouldn't do that. He saves good people like me. If that's you, well, at least you're in, you're in good company, right? Because Peter, the apostle, was in that same position. And Peter made sure that he told everybody about how God humbled him and changed his mind. And Luke made sure that he wrote it down for us so that we don't have to have that same kind of vision from God. And I pray that you would take this story and you would come prayerfully to God with something like, God, I have been a chicken. I have been a coward. I have been judgmental. I have... I've held on to your gospel message rather than share it with the people that, if I'm truthful, God, I just, I just don't want to share it with them. Please change me, God. That would be a good way to respond if you're more like Peter today. As important as those two things are, I think the main takeaway for us is that this story should move us to worship. So I want to invite the band to come back up and as we finish this out, I want you just to think about worship because God is amazing. He didn't have to save any of us. He didn't have to save Peter. He didn't have to save Cornelius. He didn't have to save any of us here. He would have been perfectly justified in just wiping us out, and yet he gave himself to ransom us, to save us. Just like Peter didn't deserve to be chosen by Jesus, just like Cornelius didn't deserve to be chosen. We don't deserve God either. We don't deserve His love. We don't deserve His compassion. We don't deserve to have our sins covered. Like the song we sang second today, our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. That mercy, that, that undeserved goodness and gift of forgiveness when we deserve judgment that mercy is not just a past gift yes we have been offered and we have received mercy in the past but it's also a present and a future gift we still need and we will continue to need god's mercy and amazingly he continues to offer it to us even if we've been walking with him for a while and then we screw up in that way that we haven't in years and we thought we were done with it and yet we Still did it again. God's mercy is there. He scoops us up. He continues to love us. His mercy holds us fast. And that's how we're going to close out our service today with this song, He Will Hold Me Fast. Just like he, he mercifully rescues us in the beginning, He continues to hold on to us despite the fact that we don't deserve it. So I pray that you would take this Acts 10 story and you'd mix it with your story and your heart would respond with amazement, thanksgiving, gratitude, and worship to the one true God who loves you and offered himself to save you. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy, your graciousness. Thank you that you... Uh, against what everybody expected, you saved Cornelius and his household. You, you sent somebody to give them the message that they needed so that they could be saved. Thank you, Lord, that 
you are extending that same grace and mercy to us today and that you are sending us out on that same mission today. Lord, help us to help us to receive your gift of mercy. Even those of us who've been walking with you for years, help us to continually receive and be washed clean in that mercy. And Lord, for those of us who are afraid to extend that mercy by sharing the gospel with others or just refuse to do it because we don't, we don't want to talk to that person, Lord, change our hearts like you changed Peter. Use us, Lord, as, as a church to extend your mercy to those who need it, especially those whom the rest of the world judges as unworthy. We are unworthy, and yet you chose us. And we worship you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.